So let's see this week, four YouTube videos, two podcasts, and my normal work. Yeah, thank God it's Friday. Welcome to the Maximize Your Medicare podcast. My name is Jay O. I'm the host. I'm the author of Maximize Your Medicare, published by Allworth Press earlier this year. You can get it on Amazon.com, the official website to the book, www.maximizeyourmedicare.com. Lots of other resources there, other podcasts, links to videos in the YouTube channel, as well as official links to government documents, some that can be kind of important when you're trying to enroll in Medicare, as well as find out other important facts. As always, today's not financial advice. In order to give financial advice, I would have to know a lot more about you. We have clients around the country. I pretty much have clients, well, I guess from Hawaii to Miami to Maine, I guess that counts as pretty much everywhere, doesn't it? Anyway, if you want to ask your private question, you can go to MaximizeYourMedicare.com. There's hashtag AskJ. That will send me an email. I guess I get asked all the time how we get compensated for pure brokerage matters. You don't have a fee. Basically, the carrier pays a rate that I do not control. In today's podcast, what we're going to have are two segments. The first segment is about the insulin copay limitation rule for 2021. The second one is a special segment of don't do this, which is a real life example of an interaction that I've had with a person who is about to become Medicare eligible and he made choices which don't make a lot of sense. So over the last few weeks, what has happened is that uh, groundbreaking CMS announcement, really, and it is groundbreaking, there's no question about that, which is that insulin is going to be limited to a $35 per month per medication copay. So irrespective of whether or not that's from a Part D plan or from a Medicare Advantage plan, that is going to be the limitation. Something I read on, uh, I think it was diabetes.org or something like that, or maybe from the official CMS website, something like a third of all Medicare beneficiaries depend on insulin, which is a stunning number, right? Because there's 60 million people on Medicare. A third sounds like 20 million people on insulin, which is obviously an incredible number for something that is pretty darn expensive. So I'm not casting doubt on the fact that it's going to be providing great relief to those persons who are dependent upon insulin, especially those at lower incomes. For those people who were on lower incomes but did not qualify for extra help, this is going to be a huge financial, uh, you know, Benny. It's going to be a financial, you know, windfall for them in the sense that they're not going to have the out-of-pocket costs. Now, there's an extra feature, and I mentioned it on my few minutes, uh, my video clip with Bob Powell on thestreet.com that we just shot, you know, a couple of days ago. 
And it's not only that it's $35 per month for insulin, but it's also $35 per month through the donut hole. So for some people, you would know that you hit a coverage gap after you meet the Part D deductible, in which case you would go to basically a coinsurance type of scheme where you have a percentage of the sticker price that you would have to pay once you're in the coverage gap. Well, instead, the $35 limit on insulin actually extends through the donut hole. And that's pretty big. Now, there is going to be some controversy here, and I'm not going to kid you, right? Because you're talking about a third, let's just call it a third of Medicare persons are dependent upon insulin, which means two thirds are not, right? You notice my sophisticated math there, right? One minus one third equals two thirds. Hello, that's 40 million, 40 million people who are basically on standalone prescription plans or they receive their Part D benefits embedded from their Medicare Advantage plan or they receive it from a different source. For example, you know, Veterans Administration being the predominant, you know, well-known one in many communities. That part is fairly clear. Now, the issue though is where's this money coming from? And we don't know because we've not seen the 2021 plans as yet, right? In other words, if you ask me who's going to be charging what premiums and co-pays for all the different medications for next year, I don't know. Nobody knows. In other words, what happens during this middle of the year is all of the sellers, insurance companies, they're putting together their proposals and packages, if you will, and they're sending them in to the federal government. So this is not that fun a time for them, right? Because what happens is what they're doing is they're basically figuring out how to fit their allowance. And the federal government has told them what their allowance is. So it's kind of like, you know, when you give an allowance to a child, you say, okay, I'm going to give you, you know, X dollars a week or X dollars a month, and you're going to divvy it up as you wish. Well, in the same way, the CMS is doing that same thing to insurance companies. As long as what the insurance companies propose is at least as good as a particular model, right? And so now the guys with the, you know, fancy calculators and slide rules, I guess, because slide rules don't exist today, do they? But anyway, you can understand, you know, the, the per people who are super good at math, super, super good at math. What they're basically trying to do is create a combination of benefits which fits within the allowance given to them from the federal government plus the premiums that they collect from you, which can be as low as zero in many Medicare Advantage plans. Okay. Now the issue is the following, right? Which is given that you've got some allowance and the allowance doesn't move, right? You've given your allowance to your child, let's call it, you know, I don't know, $20 a week, whatever it would be. The allowance isn't moving, and yet it's clear that 20 million people are going to be receiving a lot better benefits through the fact that their insulin co-pays are limited. 
right? It didn't necessarily say that insulin itself is going to be cheaper. And in fact, what ends up really happening inside the donut hole, for example, right? So right now, right, there is a limitation in terms of your coinsurance, right? So it's coverage gap isn't really coverage gap any longer, right? In other words, there's a maximum amount that you could be charged as coinsurance. The reality is, is the discount you get is actually a combination of two different discounts. Let's call it discount A, and that comes from the drug manufacturer. And discount B comes from the plan. Guess where the money came for discount B? Discount B comes from the allowance that was given to them. From the CMS. So it sounds kind of contorted, right? I mean, very confusing because all you know as the consumer is you go up to the counter and you've got to pay X percent coinsurance. That's it. That's your bottom line, as it should be, as it should be. But what I'm trying to explain to you here, which is kind of geeky, nerdy, if you will, is that the actual discount you get from the sticker price is actually broken up into two subcomponents. Like I said, discount A, discount B. Now, given the fact that 20 million people are going to be getting a pretty big break on the cost of insulin, really what's going on is that money's got to come from somewhere. Hmm. And this causes me questions, right? So this is sounds like, well, one of three things. Number one, the insurance carrier is going to eat it, meaning that, you know, it's such a hyper competitive world that they're going to go on the back end and Medicare Advantage carriers are going to go and try to turn the screws on the insulin manufacturer. That is possible. Don't get me wrong. That is possible. In fact, I wrote an article in the newsletter saying that Medicare Advantage plans may in fact be the way to systematically push down the systematic cost of healthcare by them basically exerting their influence on the price of all of healthcare. That is that is entirely possible. Now, there are a couple of other ways, right, in addition to that. And because the the reason that this first path, while you know possible, is has some limits, is that they're already working on very, very thin margin, very thin margin. So you can understand that, you know, I have lots of conversations with different of the stakeholders in the Medicare system. And, you know, that includes the carriers. And the carriers tell me that, you know, the percentage, the actual profit margin on an average basis, you know, is in the low single percent. So, it's just going to be another source whether or not they're going to eat it or whether they're going to be able to exert enough pressure in order to get that money from the insulin manufacturers. I don't have a good answer. I don't suspect that we're going to have a good answer, right? And there, that's one of those that we can try to, we know where the dots are. We can't precisely connect them, but that is certainly one path. Reality is, 
that that can't that doesn't sound like it's the only path right it doesn't sound like that's the only way that you're going to be able to get the amount of money required in order to pass on the discount to the 20 million insulin dependent medicare beneficiaries right in other words there's a couple of other places and that is number 1 increase the premiums so Part D, standalone prescription plans. In fact, you know, very stable to lower. So competitive the world is. 30 plans in most counties. Yeah, but if a third have to get this discount, I'm not sure how long that can persist. The second one could be that your copays for other medications, the discounts on other medications that are not insulin declines. Okay, in other words, your discounts decline, which means that your copays may go higher so that the carrier can get back its money so that it can pay for the discounts on insulin. Right, so it is going to be this balancing act. It's going to be a pretty interesting time for 2021. Long explanation, complicated explanation. I get it. What are the bottom lines to consumers? You know, crazy people write books, and it's me standing on soapboxes, it's me pounding on tables, which is that because of the fact that Medicare Advantage and Part D are annual contracts, there are lots of components going into each of those two. In Part D, for example, you've got formulary, you've got plan, you've got medications. Well, that's a complicated soup by itself. And given the fact that we've got something this big going in to help those persons dependent on insulin, the only way is the other parts of the soup have to be compensated, must compensate for the fact that insulin has this discount. That's the only common sense conclusion. This means more than ever, 2021 is a year you're going to want to check your Part D plan and you're going to want to check your Medicare Advantage plan to see so that you can get the best benefits for every dollar. Okay, so it's time for the segment called Don't Do This. And basically, this this episode is about a situation which occurs in real life and really, really, really disappointing when people come to the wrong conclusion. So this particular person is, uh, you know, there's a married couple, they're both retired. And the spouse of the retiree, okay, the spouse of the retiree is turning 65. Now, this particular plan is the FEHB, which is the Federal Employee Health Benefits Plan. Now, by all means, this same logic can be applied to anyone who is the spouse of a retiree at a large employer, which for Medicare purposes is only 20 full-time employees, okay? So if this retire if the spouse is the retire is the spouse of a full-time employee, then it is entirely the case that the retiree can pass on part B and can just simply go on with the large employer plan. However, that's not the case in this situation because 
the employee is actually retired from the FEHB. So as a result, the spouse of the, of the employee, the retired employee, must enroll in Part A and Part B. There's no way around that. Okay, so now the person is turning 65 in the next few months and approaches me and says, okay, what are we supposed to do? We have our Part A and Part B active for you know a couple months in the future. And from here, it becomes a math of money because what happens is certainly FEHB can be the secondary insurance for the spouse of the retiree. And it turns out that this, the extra amount of money that it would cost for the coverage is somewhere in the mid 200s. So let's just call it $260. I want to say it's 270, but let's just call it $260. Now, the nuance here is that these persons also are subject to IRMA. And IRMA is, for those people who do not know, that is the extra amounts that people are charged for Part B as well as prescription drug benefits if you have higher income. And as a married couple, that number is what? $174. $174,000 as a, as a married couple. Okay. So if you have modified adjusted gross income, which is a special one for Medicare, but for most, for all intents and purposes, if you exceed that, then you'd have to pay IRMA. And there are going to be two separate IRMAs, one for Part B, as well as one for Part D. Okay. And now in this situation, the couple would be subject to it. That all said, you know, that is just a nuance here because let's just take a look at how much it would cost for Medicare Part A and Part B plus FEHB or the large employer plan, $260. So this would be $144 plus IRMA for Part B, plus 260. So let's just round that to 400 Is would be the total cost. Now, under Medigap, for example, you would have to have a slightly di different configuration, which is that you would have the Part B plus the Part B IRMA, the same as under FEHB, the same. So that's 144 plus Part B IRMA. Medigap for this person would cost something in the $125. So now we're at $144 plus $120, uh, $125, $260, right? $260. But the reality is the $144 isn't counted here, right? Because he has to have that under both configuration. So the real number to compare is this $125. Now, on top of that would be a standalone prescription plan. And for this person would be approximately $20 to $25. And then the Part D IRMA, which at the maximum, at the absolute maximum, even if you made were on the absolute top tier, and let me just pull it up here on the on maximizeyourmedicare.com. So here I've got the IRMA tables, which are stated there for you. 
and you can just go onto the website and there it'll be. And how much is Irma for this person, even at the worst possible case? In the worst possible case, even in, in the highest income bracket, Irma would be $77.44 for Part D. So let's put it all together. Under the large employer plan, it would be basically $209, $260. Sorry, that's what I said, $260. Under the Medigap plan, it would be $125 plus $25 for the Part D plus even at the worst, $77.40. So let's call it $125 plus $105. Okay, one twenty-five plus one hundred five, two hundred and thirty dollars. In other words, staying with FEHB, the large employer plan would be two hundred and sixty dollars. Going to Medigap would be two hundred and thirty dollars. All right, two hundred and thirty dollars, which is one twenty-five plus. 25 plus 77. So I rounded up to one to 130. The person decided to stay with FEHB. Now, this is pretty incredible because when you think about the possible outcomes and general principles about what is going on, this is, and I told them quite candidly, I said, look, you're the consumer. It's always your prerogative. And just so you know, if you get an email from me and the words are, you're the consumer and it's always the consumer's prerogative, that is basically my code for that doesn't sound right. And the reason is because in every part of coverage, if you actually required healthcare services, if you actually required healthcare services, then it is literally impossible to be better than Medigap. Let me repeat that. It is literally impossible to be better than Medigap. Why? Because under the plan that I just suggested, which was 125, what happens? Well, there's a $200 deductible. Okay. There's no such thing as group plan, individual plan, even if it's platinum plus, where you're anywhere close to there, right? In which other, in other words, you could have a you could have a group deductible. The lowest I've seen is five hundred for a family. That's the absolute lowest. Could there be conceivably be two fifty? Maybe, maybe. So let's even let's, even if you call that a tie. The issue is once you meet the deductible under Medigap, that's it. That's also your out-of-pocket maximum. In other words, no matter what healthcare situation scenario you would draw, once you're done paying the $200 Part B deductible, you could live in the hospital, literally live in the hospital, and your cost would be zero. Under every other group plan, Right, even if the deductible were the same, there's going to be coinsurance and there's going to be an out of pocket maximum. Right, so in any other situation, even if minor, the group plan is going to be more expensive in terms of out of pocket cost. There's no situation 
here. In other words, right? When you go to the doctor, whether you need to go to the hospital, whatever it would be, it's always going to be worse under the group plan. And this is a fact that I've known. This is a fact that I've known. In fact, I've got an entire chapter in Maximize Your Medicare about this situation that people, what ends up happening is they take their group plan and said, okay, it's been a high quality group plan. I'm going to stay with it. But that really doesn't make any sense. It, it makes no sense. Really, it doesn't. Why? Because not only is the group plan weaker, it's also more expensive. Both. And this violates absolutely rule number one from my financial planning point of view. And when I analyze any financial contract, any, doesn't matter. It could be it could be something like, you know, extended warranty on a refrigerator. Okay. If I get it at a low enough price, I get it, I buy it, right? If the price is low enough. So in other words, if you gave me an extended warranty for zero dollars, I, I will take it. I'll take it even though I know that the probability of my refrigerator, you know, breaking down is pretty darn low, right? I know it's low. Doesn't matter. It costs zero. I'll take the extended warranty at that price. Well, look what's happened over here. What's happened over here is the person is paying $700 a year, $60 more approximately 260 right versus 230 so so let's just call it $350 to $400 more in a year for something that is going to be worse something that's going to be worse this is literally throwing away money okay so you're down $400 running for sure and if you have healthcare services then Medigap is always superior in every instance. Therefore, you're minus $400 in cash for sure. And you're also minus extra cash if you have healthcare services. And by the way, those plans have network, pre-authorizations, et cetera, et cetera, which are absent in Medigap, which has basically no network. Why? Because if the carrier or if the doctor, I should say, accepts the federal Medicare card, then they'll accept your Medigap plan. Even in very good instances under group plan, under individual plan, even if it's platinum plus, there's still the concept of networks. There's still the concept of approvals from the insurance carrier. So that's why this couple who succeeded of course as a career no no one no one's disputing any of that but nevertheless when it came to this financial matter they did something that i'd have to say don't do this that's it for today be sure to subscribe to this podcast on apple podcast stitcher spotify anywhere you enjoy your podcast you can find the maximize your medicare podcast please write your comments and give us a five-star review wherever you do consume your podcast. I'm Jay. This is the Maximize Your Medicare podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.